Hey guys, I'm Adam Rappaport, and this is the Bon Appetit Foodcast. All right, this week, we've got Andy Baragani interviewing Naz Daravian, cookbook author from Iran, uh, whose first book, Bottom of the Pot, came out this year, and it's based on her incredibly popular blog of the same name. Uh, Andy talks to Naz about the tradition of eating in her family and, of course, her method for making tadig, or crispy rice. Hence the name of the blog and the book. Anyways, before we get started, uh, I want to tell you about a promotion from Bon Appetit. Uh, we've got an awesome gift box this year, which includes a one-year subscription to the magazine, an exclusive tote bag, three of BA's best cookie recipes, a cookie dough scoop so you can make all those recipes, a stasher reusable silicone bag, plus two score bars. All right for the spiced snickerdoodle crunch cookie recipe. To gift yours, go to bonappetit.com slash gift. How easy is that? bonappetit.com slash gift. All right, now let's get to the show. I am so happy today. To have Nas Deravion. Tell me if I pronounce that. Loud. I feel like I obligated that I should know how to. You pronounce should it. get it right. Um, was it was very close. Deravion. Deravion. So very good. Okay. And then you know sometimes I just go with Deravion just to make things easier. <laughs> oh, I have a lot of stories about my name, yeah. but we won't get into that. You are the author of the brand new cookbook, Bottom of the Pot: Persian Recipes and Stories. I can't tell you enough. This is kind of a surreal experience. It's like we've never met before, but I've known about you for for years now, and I've been following your your life and your journey. And uh, from the piece from Melissa Clark in the New York Times two years ago, I just have been in awe of you, and I'm so proud uh, that you've published this incredible book that uh, not only has beautiful recipes, but stories that I certainly can relate to as a first-generation uh, Iranian-American. Thank you. And likewise. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I guess my first question I wanted to ask you was, how would you describe Persian cuisine? It's, um, I think a lot of people know or have heard of the term Persian and know the country Iran, but they don't really know the food. How would you describe it? I get asked that question a lot, actually. And I think the first thing that comes to people's minds is kebab. That's all we eat, which is so far from the truth. Um, I would describe Persian cuisine as home cooking first and foremost, um, gathering around a table with your family and friends and feasting. <laughs> um, there, of course, there is the beautiful platter of rice with an accompanying stew, which is very flavorful and fresh and herb-heavy, mm -hmm. herb-forward. <laughs> and um, there are lots of spices used, but it's not particularly spicy mm -hmm. um, and fragrant. Um, I think in Persian cuisine, of course, it matters what it tastes like, what it looks like, but that scent is also really, really important. The scent of the rice um, there's nothing like it that says home to me. Smelling that rice steaming, I know that I'm in for a good meal and that my mom's probably cooking because no one else is making the rice <laughs> other than me. <laughs> so <laughs> I know. I, it's, uh, I grew up where my mom, she made the rice, and 
I think I'm pretty much the only other person now who, who makes the rice. Right. My husband's getting there, actually. We have the um, the Persian rice cooker, which I highly recommend. You're not cheating. You're, you're just making life easier. It's okay. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, feel good about it, and you'll really, like, wow your friends <laughs> i have some questions on rice i'm gonna i'm gonna hold that off for later but i guess wanted uh, to go a little bit back and uh you had a you have a really interesting upbringing you mm-hmm. left iran when you were eight years old this was around the Ra- iranian revolution at, uh, at during uh, 1979 um and then from there you tell me so we left after the revolution. We left in 1980, and yes, I was eight years old. Um, it was a quick decision to leave, like many other families like us. So I, I wouldn't say that my story is unique. And then we left for Rome. My parents had met in Rome as young students years and years before that. They had my brother there. They had a life there. But ultimately, they wanted to go back to their country and contribute and work in their respective fields. And they did. And they had me in Iran. Um, So Rome was the natural choice of where to go. Unfortunately, they had given up their residency in Italy at that time and couldn't get it back. So we were stuck, what to do, where to go. And so started the hunt for a new country and who would take us. Um, America at the time was out of the question. It was 1980, and there was a thing called the hostage crisis. But Canada opened its doors, and we moved to Vancouver. We didn't know a thing about Vancouver. We didn't know what to expect. We thought we, I think we equated it with, like, Alaska. (laughs) That's what we thought we were moving to. Um, and it turned out to be this beautiful city, and we made a home there, and there was an expat community, and we just started anew, fresh. There's a rather large Iranian community in, in British Columbia. In now there is. Oh, a huge um, Iranian community. There is a street in North Vancouver called Lonsdale Street, and it, it's all Persian markets and restaurants and Persians everywhere. <laughs> it's I would say it's larger than Westwood in LA. So now there is. At that time, I think we were like the fourth or fifth family. Wow. Um, Iranian family that had immigrated there. So um, it was all really new to us. And then from there, you left Vancouver to come to California, LA specifically. I did. Um, I have a side job as an actor. <laughs> Uh, so I made the pilgrimage from Vancouver to L.A. Like all actors. Most actors. Most actors, <laughs> as one would. <laughs> nothing if I'm not, nothing if not predictable. And yeah, and I was working. And then food is always just, I mean, as you know, it's part of our culture. We can't think of, I mean, we can't speak of being Iranian without speaking of the food. It goes hand in hand with the poetry and the art and the politics. Um it's just ingrained. It's in our blood. When I first moved to L.A., after about a week, I was really hungry. And it's not that I hadn't been eating, but I hadn't had polo choresh, sabzi khordan, For those of you listening, polo is rice, choresh our Persian stews, really fragrant stews uh, made from different fruits and vegetables and herbs. 
uh, and then I'm afraid of the, yeah. the huge, like the fresh platter of fresh herbs, and then Mostochiar's yogurt and cucumber, which is my forever friend. Absolutely. It goes with me wherever I go. <laughs> uh, so I called up my mom and I said, I'm starving. Um, I need a piece of home. I'm homesick. So she told me, she described how to make the rice in three sentences. My recipe in the book, I believe, is three and a half pages. <laughs> okay, that's that's how I would write. Uh, I've written some rice recipes, and that's it takes like three columns. And our editor-in-chief, Adam Rappaport, he always kind of gives me a little bit of uh, crap about like, oh, can't you just like describe the rice in, in three sentences? Yeah, that would be ideal. You could, as my mother does, <laughs> but you would have to really know how to fill in the gaps, right? And there are no, I, I'm sure as you know, no measurements. No. whatsoever. I mean, I don't think there was a measuring utensil in our house, unless if it was for baking, and then I think we had a, a scale, mm. possibly. And even for that, it was like, this is the flour cup. It wasn't necessarily an actual measuring, measuring cup. cup. <laughs> so, so I've cooked. I've always been cooking, and I love feeding people. That's what's most important to me. And I think that's part of the culture too. You know, we, we're, whatever you might think of us, we're a generous culture when it comes to hospitality. Absolutely. Um, that's the way we show our love and appreciation. And if you come, you walk through our doors, we're going to stuff something in your We're going to force <laughs> feed you. We're going to force well, yeah. feed you um, a lot of food. <laughs> I think that's one thing we had to adjust and adapt to when we moved to Vancouver was when our Canadian friends had us over, they had like just the right amount of food. It was just enough for everyone to get, you know, fill their plate. And it was really strange because for us, you not only have to have enough, you have to have more than enough. An excess. An excess because who knows who's going to walk through the door and, you know, God forbid, if you run out of food, that's it. <laughs> that, there's nothing worse than that. There's nothing worse than that. The shame that it brings. And you're going to be talking about it for the next two weeks and reliving that moment. <laughs> so, yeah, and then came the book. I started a blog. The just, blog came about seven years ago? How many years ago? Um, 2013, okay, I want to so say. Five yeah, years about ago. five years ago. And it started off just really um, out of these meals that we were having with my friends, non-Persian friends at our home who would, who loved what they were eating, but they just seemed so intimidated by this food. And I think you can speak to this too. It's what is it that's taken our food so long to, to bust out? You it's, know? it's definitely... I mean, yeah, I was going to ask you, like, why has it taken it so long? I I think Persian food is, I hate saying that it's trending or having a moment, but it is having a moment. Um, I think the, with your cookbook, with definitely there's been a few restaurants ca- coming out in the past year in New York City uh, and other cookbooks. It's there's a there's a spotlight on it and which is great because the food is so unique and so distinct. But I don't think people know where to find it or, or how to cook it. Exactly. So my friends would be eating this and saying, well, how can I make this for my family and friends? And it always made me a little sad because, like I said, our food is about home cooking and sharing it with friends and family. So I started the blog really because I got tired of emailing people separately these recipes. Um, this is what you do with the rice. And 
um, so I started writing this blog for my friends and family, and I kind of it took off from there. Um, as I started writing these recipes down, I found that there were stories behind them. It triggered a lot of memories from my childhood in Iran, which we hadn't really talked of. Um, when we left, we left, and that was that. Um, can I ask, have you been back since? I haven't. Oh, my God. I wow. haven't. So this is all based on memory, and I'm always fascinated by memory, too, because as I was writing the book, I would call up my mother and say, well, do you remember that night we ate this? And she says, I do not remember a thing. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. So what was it about that particular meal that stuck with me as a six-year-old, as a seven-year-old? I find that really cool and fascinating. So I wanted to get deeper and sort of, you know, look into that. What would you, if there were like essential ingredients um, that one would need to make uh, Iranian food, or I guess what are the kind of essential ingredients that make up the Persian pantry of sorts? Mm -hmm. Got to start with rice. Rice. So you need that sack of 10 pounds sack of rice. <laughs> and it's not just any regular rice. And it's, it's not any regular rice. What sets Persian rice apart is that it's long grained and you want every grain of rice to be scattered on that platter like jewels, separate and long, no clumping. But if it clumps, it's okay. The Persian rice police won't come after you. I might come after you, but... Uh. <laughs> Andy might. I'm totally okay <laughs> with it. Um, just try a little harder next time. <laughs> just kidding. Um, so, yeah, you want to start in here in North America. Your best bet is in basmati rice. And it's the fragrance of the rice, too. You want it to have that, you know, that distinct basmati has that fragrance in an Iranian rice, which we can't really access here at the moment. So start with a good rice. And then the Persian palate loves all things sour. We love that little bright and fresh and it makes you just you pucker know, pucker yeah. but it's not pucker in a in like make you wince kind of way but in a really um flavorful and bright that's how i would describe it my you know we always say now bring the dish to life and that's what does it, it gives that. it it gives that kick that makes it come to life and that could be anything from just plain old fresh lemon juice if all else fails Use lemon juice on anything. It'll fix it. <laughs> um, so if you have some of the ingredients, like the Persian dried limes, that you might not be able to find, it'd be great if you try and find it, but you can always use lemon juice. Lime juice, tomato paste does that. It gives it a little depth and that sour, that acid. Then we get into pomegranate molasses, the Persian dried limes, which I think are the coolest things. They're so amazing. <laughs> and they look kind of alien-like and all shriveled and great, but they have such a distinct flavor. You can't get that flavor. It's these, like, we call it limo amani, and their whole Persian limes, which are, like, smaller than than regular limes that you salt and then kind of let them dry out in they the sun. They just dry out and wrinkle up, shrivel up. And they have this like musky, almost a str stringent. It's string It's earthy too. Um, the seeds are really bitter. Mm. So people, I like, I'm one of those Persians who likes to eat the limes <laughs> with my khoresh and with my rice and stuff. But it does have that, 
it, the seeds have a bitter quality. So all you do is just um, you poke a couple of holes in them, drop them in your stew or, or the abgust or what, whatever it is you're making, and they'll just soften up and release that, that earthy, bitter, sour, musky um, flavor into whatever it is you're making. I highly recommend them. Then there is verjuice. Yeah. Um, the juice of sour green grapes, which again has a lovely, it's, it's, I, I find it's, um, it's a mellower acid than even lemon juice. Um, but we also use the grapes themselves, the I sour green I, grapes yeah, themselves. That. They're in season. Cure. Cure. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> and you can, we drop those in like Horish Badam John, the eggplant stew. The, um, the grapes themselves are in season in late May early June, what you can do is if you come across any, buy them and then freeze them Mm -hmm. and they can last you. Or you can also buy them pickled as well in jars from the Middle Eastern markets and Persian markets. Um, Tamarind is another souring ingredient. So sour. Think sour in a lovely, fresh note, not not in a make you wince kind of note. And then, of course, the spices. Yeah. Um, which but goes back to fragrance. You said something really interesting in the beginning. It's, it, you said how there are there are spices in, in Persian cuisine, but it's not spicy. And, and we don't have really any food that has this fiery heat to it that I could think of, except it's for the South. S- Southern cuisine, yes. which borders Pakistan, mm-hmm. um, does. And it makes sense that, makes that sense, it yeah. would. I didn't grow up eating Southern cuisine. So that was a revelation to me in the past few years. And I think it's quite a lovely revelation. But these days, if you like a little bit bit of heat, go ahead and add your cayenne pepper. It's it's okay, (laughs) you know. Um, But no, it's not spicy. It's fragrant. And um, the example I like to use is cinnamon. So we don't use cinnamon in our baked goods, in our sweets. That's not, we use it in our stews and scatter it in, our, in between the rice grains. Um, and it's not, it doesn't add a sweet note at all. It's just a, a fragrant note. What would you say are kind of the spices that, that you see in Iranian food? Because I really, I tell people like there, we don't actually use a lot of different spices. It's just a handful of spices, but we're very careful with the way we use them. It is. so um, Definitely cinnamon. Cinnamon, turmeric. We got to talk about saffron, <laughs> the queen of all spices. <laughs> Cumin. Cardamom, Cardamom is yeah. used also um, in the savory dishes. Rose petals. Yeah. So the thing with rose petals that are very in fashion now is we use damask rose petals. So it has to be the light rose petals and we grind them up. Um, you can buy them, they're dried, and then you pick all the little sticks and little things off of them and then you grind them up. I use a little mini food processor to grind them up and we use it, it's used as a spice, um, it, not necessarily as a, you know. Um, decorative. Decorative. Or- and har- never the petal itself. It looks beautiful in photographs. I've used it in my own photographs, but please grind those petals up. Chewing down on a whole Oof. petal is the worst. Really and then is. you'll think Persians don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> but we do. Grind those rose petals up and use them as a spice. A little, and again, a little goes a long way. I find um, there's a tendency when we discover a new spice, we just want to use it a lot. 
and you have to have a, a soft touch with these because you can very a light hand, yeah. a light hand you can really quickly go from um, flavorful to bitter, especially with but all any of those spices. Any of with those cinnamon, cinnamon turmeric, saffron. <laughs> I mean, I sometimes see you know two and a half teaspoons of turmeric, and I just kind of have to be like, oh no, no way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the rose petals and the cardamom gets you know too much of it and it's bitter so start off with a little and then just keep tasting taste your food people please <laughs> yeah throughout beginning middle and and adjust and just there is this subtlety to persian food that uh it would, it's what kind of stands out to me. I mean, granted, like I'm biased and I grew up with it, but it's uh, the, the spices are mellow. The amount of herbs, like it is, still people laugh at how much herbs I use when I'm cooking Persian food. But it's like I'm probably not even using as much as I should be at times. Um, copious, copious mounds of herbs, and the thing is, not only do we eat them raw, but we cook them down. They're the base. For so, they're the main ingredient for so many of the osh, which is the thicker soups, and then the stews like sabzi, which is just meat, beans, and like you said, copious amounts of herbs. Um, we're talking bunches. So it was interesting working on the book and writing the recipes because I, you know, I think I made it clear early on that I was not going to give measurements of the herbs in cups and tablespoons. I think that would just kill every (laughs) bit of, you know, Persian instinct and love for the food that I have in me if I had to stuff herbs into cups and tablespoons and whatnot. So I've had to do that. It 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 definitely killed me a little bit. Yeah. who stuffs herbs into a cup? (laughs) And then (laughs) packed or unpacked? Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, so we work in bunches, or in Iran in kilograms. Mm-hmm. So it might be for Khorsh Gormasabzi, you're looking at four good bunches of parsley, maybe one or two bunches of cilantro. So, and don't worry if your bunch is a little over or under, it, it, fix it, add more lemon juice, or throw another limu amani in there. It's, so, I wanna, th- this stew is, one of the most famous Persian stews. It's it's called Gorma Sabzi, and the base is herbs, like you mentioned, and it's parsley, cilantro. I'm curious to see like what our variations are, but parsley, cilantro, uh, dried fenugreek leaves, not the seeds. Um, I had turmeric to mine, and then the green meat, onion, the, the green onion, the greens, the, the greens. ends of the green of um, scallions. Scallions. So I stopped using scallions. I went to um, and use like um, garlic chives, which is tare. Tare, which is harder to find. Which is harder to find. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so good on good you. <laughs> <laughs> so tare is it's um yes it's it's a very specific. It's very specific green herb like garlic chives, and they're harder to find. If you can find tare, use use them instead of the green onions, mm-hmm. but don't use the two again because then it, it, we can go into that bitter yes. taste. I'll, uh, um, I'll yeah, use so lamb or beef lamb or veal. Or, lamb or beef for veal, saffron, of course, and then the limu amani, Persian dried limes, and beans. You use kidney beans or uh, black-eyed peas? I grew up with black-eyed, black-eyed peas. peas. Wow. So to me, kidney beans just don't taste 
Right. And all the restaurants serve it with kidney beans. Um, my mother is from Azerbaijan, okay. the province to the north, and we've always used black. I so, never grew up with black-eyed peas in, in, in enormous or, Right? <laughs> so again, there's these regional differences, and it's just slight, but it can make all the difference, and people feel very strongly about it. <laughs> and you kind of have to know who you're speaking to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> to keep the peace. I don't mind it. With kidney beans? If you like kidney beans, use kidney beans. I'm not offended, I swear. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I grew up with it, with black eyed peas. So. It's, uh, it's definitely one of my favorite soups. I'm curious to know what is one or even a few of your favorite dishes and um, if you could describe them. What I call our mac and cheese at, in our house um, is lubia polo, which is green beans and Traditionally, it's made with red meat. I make it with chicken. And it's our go-to dish at the end of the week when everyone's had a long week and the kids get home and the backpacks are, like, slammed to the ground and everyone's had it. We put in a movie, like Indiana Jones or something, and it's Lubia Polo at the coffee table with the yogurt and cucumber on one side and the fresh herbs on the other, and we just tuck in. And Lubio, it's, so it's not just green beans and chicken. Again, there's the fragrant cinnamon, and um, it's the base of the green beans and chicken is made with tomato paste and saffron, of course, and lemon juice. Um, so that's our go-to make-you-feel-good kind of home-cooked meal. And just to distinguish, like, when we, cello, when we say cello, we're talking about Plain rice. Saffron. With saffron steamed rice, rice. Saffron steamed rice. Polo is usually, or polo consists of basically rice that's been mixed with different other items. So that can be like the green beans and tomatoes for lubia polo, or it could have lentils for, for adas polo, depending on the dish. Fava beans. Fava beans. Um, yeah. But then, you know, we it gets confusing because at home we call all rice polo. Polo. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> 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 then, of course, there's fesenjon, the famous stew of pomegranate molasses and walnuts, which I think is the easiest Persian stew to prepare. There is nothing to chop aside from just like the chicken pieces into, you know, three pieces or something, but there are no herbs, no onion to brown, the way that we make it. My father's from Gilan province, so our fesenjan is not sweet. At all. At all. Yeah, I, there's, I, I, there's no sugar. <laughs> and I will have a debate. About okay, this. I'm ready. I feel very strongly <laughs> about it. I think it comes down to what you've grown up with. Absolutely. So the taste to me when I have sweet fesenjan, it just doesn't, it doesn't taste right. But it doesn't mean that it's not good. I watch other people enjoying it. I, um, I have strong feelings, of, I mean, about food, obviously. But fesenjan is... Is probably the. It's definitely not a pretty looking dish. Not at all. It's kind of like a brown, swampy looking dish. To that's just the way it looks. But it is incredibly delicious, and it's been around for so long. Supposedly, it used to be made with um, peacock, and then uh, I've heard it's been prepared with turkey duck. and duck or duck. Or duck means but that, duck, yeah. yeah. But uh, I always grew up with it uh, made with um, chicken. And some uh, some regions prepare it with meatballs. Oh yeah, uh, gel gel or gel 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 g
and some with like pumpkin or butternut oh, squash. That I can't get behind. You I know, mean, and I, I've seen versions with eggplant. I'm just a chicken and, you know, walnut and pomegranate molasses girl. Do you toast your walnuts? I do not. No. Yeah, my mom never did that no, either. No, I think that's a new thing because in the West, it's, yeah. I don't know, you like to toast Yeah, you know, my mom never, I toasted it and then I would pulse in a food processor. So you toast it just to draw to give it a little more um, to draw out the flavor of the walnuts. Yeah, I'll usually I'll toast the walnuts. I'll do my piaz dog, which translates so to like. So I don't do piaz dog. You don't do it. Wow. No. Do you do any onion? No onion. No onion. It's really kind of cool the way that I grew up with it being prepared the northern way. So you just pulse the walnuts raw, um, almost to a paste. And that's, that depends on your personal preference, too, if you would like to have that little bite of the walnut under your tooth or not. But the way we do it is just almost to a paste. And then you mix it with water in a, in a mixing bowl. And then you add it to your pot and you add your pomegranate molasses. I heat up my pomegranate molasses first a little bit. Be careful because it can burn very quickly. Mm-hmm. And then add it. And then you just add the walnut mixture. And then you just let it simmer for like three hours Every once in a while, you add a little more water. So you want those walnut oils to rise to the top. Mm-hmm. And that takes the bitterness out of the walnuts. And you just let it simmer and simmer and simmer and then poach your chicken in it. That's it. Wow. I should. There's a, <laughs> you should a come more over one line. day. Absolutely. <laughs> Any reason for me to come That's to That's why LA? I said it's so easy. Um, and then we have to talk about golpar. Persian hogweed, which is a spice um, used primarily in the north. Um, we add it to the fesenjun. We add it to zeytun parverde, which is, which is olives marinated in walnut and pomegranate molasses. Um, you know, I grew up eating golpar, just sprinkling it on um, pomegranate seeds. My dad did that all the time, and I told him to get it away from it's me. It's one of those, you either love it or hate it. And it's I had people in my family that fell on, you know, both sides. That and green, pepper, green bell peppers, I'm just like, I can't. I don't know yeah, why. Yeah, it's, I find golpar, people have the same reaction to it as they do to cilantro. Mm-hmm. You know, some people just can't. It's like a genetic thing. Um, and I think golpar, I love it. So you can keep the gold pear out of your peasant <laughs> and a little ground dried rose petals. I love that though. Just the variations. It, it you mentioned in the book, just like these dishes change from region to region, um, neighborhood by neighborhood, and home, you know, to, home, home to home. Truly. And and everybody feels so strongly, so passionately about their version, right? Even my mother, she would watch me prepare some of these. And, you know, I like to do my own thing. I haven't been back to Iran. I left when I was eight years old. I don't, you know, this is how I'm cooking in L.A. And she had a hard time with it, <laughs> with some of my preparations. Oh, I love that because I was going to ask you, I know that I, I've i learned so much from my mother and my grandmother when it comes to uh, Persian cuisine, but I have definitely taken the liberty of kind of taking the things that I've learned working from restaurants mm-hmm. or working at Bon App and just kind of put my own little twist. And I'm curious what your mom thinks about the way you approach and prepare uh, I Persian call it food. making it your own. You ultimately have to make the dish your own for your family. Um, I cook, you know, depending on my mood, one day I might use cinnamon, one day I might use a little less cinnamon just because that day I don't feel like it. And it's okay, I'm not baking, it's not formulaic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my mom would say, this is a 
banter we have going on all the time. She'll say, oh, in our house, we don't da -da -da make it you know, that way, to which I'll respond, well, in our house, <laughs> we do. <laughs> I, I think you have to pay respect to tradition and pay homage to it and understand it and know it, but then it's okay to do it your way because ultimately you're going to be eating it. I do have a problem if I see something that veers off so far and then they call, call it Khoresh Khor Masabzi and it, where it clearly is not. It's probably a very delicious dish all to itself, but you can say inspired by Khoresh Khor Masabzi, you know, but don't, if you've like really gone off, just don't give it that name. Yeah. Yeah, be uh, careful with your approach in that regards. Um, God, I could go on and on forever. <laughs> uh, the title of your book is called Bottom of the Pot. That is a reference to, I would be killed if I didn't bring this up, to the burnt, delicious, addictive, what I continue to fight my dad over <laughs> when I'm back at home in California. It's referred to as the Tadiq. Tadik means bottom, a uh, bottom pot. Ta is bottom, dik is pot. So <laughs> it's nothing crazy exotic. <laughs> it is really, and I find a lot of our dishes, it's it is what it is. Like korma sabzi, korma is the meat. Yes. Sabzi is it's very literal. Or, it's very literal. <laughs> Even though we're very poetic and very lyrical, but when it comes to the food, food exactly, it is what it is. There's it's so bizarre. Mastukhiar is. Yogurt cucumber. <laughs> it's it is literal. I, I I don't with the food they kind of gave up in that regards. They didn't try to make it too. I don't know poetic. where Fess and John comes from. I'm I'm gonna look into that. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't either. Because it's not Gerdu Robanar, yeah. you know, <laughs> walnut, pomegranate, molasses. But um, I'll look into that. So Tadig is what every child at the table, like yourself, what we fought over. It's what our grandmothers handed the kids first, what our mothers handed the elders first. Um, there was a fight for that last piece. It's the crispy, golden sun burning bright at the bottom of your pot. It's a little tricky. It can be tricky to turn out. No one's tadik turns out every single time beautifully. So if it doesn't work out for you the first time, it's okay. It's okay to gather around the pot and like, you know, scrape it out. It's okay if it didn't get crispy enough. Just make notes for the next time. Mm -hmm. And there are like many variables, like I don't know, the heat, your heat might be burning, your element might be burning hotter than mine or not as hot, so. So what's uh, what's uh, to achieving the kind of ideal tad? You can of course practice makes perfect, but what would be the kind of uh, ideal vessel? What's the perfect pot? You know what, I would, for people who are just starting out, you can use that nonstick pot. Mm -hmm. Don't mess around with your Le Creuset and stainless steel i mean you're gonna get yourself into I feel like that's what i grew up with though my mom made tadik in a, in a, in a stainless uh, steel no in a, in a non-sick pot it's non we, we all we, we all, all had non-sick i pot. think now we we're a little more cautious about using non-stick which i understand i'm a mother myself we don't use it all the time it's not like i'm you we're not eating this every single night so when we do use it i bring out the non-stick pot it just takes a lot of the pressure off i've made it in my licorice it's been hit and miss mm -hmm. um there have been times that it's worked great and times that it hasn't and then flipping those things is heavy it's heavy 
you might be able to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've made it a tadigan caster iron pan. Mm-hmm. And again, when it comes to, and you don't always have to flip it either. You can just typically, like for a big party, you'll scoop out the rice and then serve the tadigan pieces on mm-hmm. the side. So it starts, I, it starts with your pot. Um, if you're just starting out, if you want to, you know, be safe about it, use a nonstick pot, and then you have to grease it. You, you have to grease that bottom of and the pot. The, that, so a form of fat. So what kind of fat do you usually I use? I use, I personally use a mixture of butter and olive oil. Now, I know that's <laughs> a little controversial. You know, you know, uh, I like the taste of the olive oil. Mm-hmm. Louisa Shafia, she uses olive oil, too. She uses Louisa, yeah, listen yeah. to what Louisa yeah. does. <laughs> <laughs> you can use ghee. I personally am not a fan of a ghee. For me, is a little um, strong. Mm-hmm. The flavor, the, the flavor, like kind of nutty. Yeah, it's a little bit too much for me. But you could use ghee. Um, you can use grapeseed oil, vegetable oil, if that's what you have on hand. Um, a mixture of butter and a oil is always nice because the butter adds a really nice flavor mm-hmm. to to the tadik. Um, and it's this adult, you know, two-step process. So first you cook the rice as you might pasta in a large pot of water with lots of water uh, water in it. And then you strain it. Um, you want it to get kind of al dente, the rice grains. Um, and then it's the steaming process. So you want to burn, not burn, but crisp up the bottom of the pot while you're steaming the rice up top. And I think sometimes we forget to talk about the rice itself up top, um, that you don't want to oversteam it so they get clumpy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is that lovely method, I don't know if you grew up with this, of testing the no. taddy, um, of licking your finger and then sticking it to the pot quickly and if it sizzles if it gives that oh s- then you turn down then it's time to turn down your heat huh. i never saw the finger i saw like uh, uh flicking some water on the pot that's what i would you say. were much more civilized <laughs> than we were <laughs> no for us it was the lick of the finger and then you stuck it which looked very odd to people because you're burning yourself a little bit but <laughs> um and then you know that it's that initial 10 minutes when you want the higher heat to set the tadig, and then you turn it down and cover it with, cover your um, lid with a dish towel or paper towels. This is a great trick for making rice in general, no matter how you're making it. Do cover it, um, that it, the dish towel catches the condensation so your rice doesn't get clumpy. Mm-hmm. I do it when I make quinoa, anything of the sort. Yeah, and so that, that water doesn't kind of drip back drip into the back pot. Drip back in. Um, so, uh, some kind of uh, fat in the form of or a combination of uh, olive oil and butter and then you pour the kind of al dente drained rice and pack it down pack your it tad down. your tadik layer you want to sprinkle a little saffron add it to that mixture of um, whatever fat you're using and how do you use the saffron there because I know that we Persians don't typically just kind of take the saffron threads and kind of just sprinkle it or massage between our two fingers and no. we have a particular method yes. I'll, I'll let you explain so saffron is very expensive um so i think this was a way of our method is uh, it's an economical way of making getting the most for your saffron so we buy the threads and we grind them to a powder you can do that you can buy these cute little saffron mortar, mortar and pestles um you can use a regular mortar and pestle 
I use so much of it. I have a dedicated saffron grinder. Um, it's like a coffee. Like a spice mill. It's like a spice mill, but, um, and, I, and I've written for saffron only, so no one puts anything else in there, like coffee beans. Um, so you want to get this powder, and then what you want to do is mix a little bit of that powder with water, hot water. And there's another technique, too, over ice. Mm -hmm. I didn't grow up with that technique. I grew up with the hot water. So you bring a little bit of water to a boil, then let that subside a little, let it sit, because you don't want to pour hot boiling water over the saffron. It's said that it kills its soul. <laughs> we don't want to kill a saffron soul. <laughs> We're so sensitive as we, a culture. We really are. <laughs> but you know, these things stick in the back of your head. <laughs> yeah, and then just let it brew like tea. And then you can add it to your stew or to the bottom of the pot for the tadig um, or over the rice when you're steaming the rice. Um, and that keeps too. So if you have a little bit left over, you keep, keep your saffron tea, saffron water in the fridge and use it next time. Or knock it back yourself. Amazing. It's an antidepressant <laughs> and an aphrodisiac. I knew about the aphrodisiac. I don't know about the antidepressant. Well, don't they kind of go? Yeah, I guess yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, I could uh, go on and on and on. I think that's all the time we have today. But I can't thank you enough. I can't wait to come over to L.A. to your, to your home and... Have your fist in we'll, June. We'll have your northern style fist in June. Um, big congrats on the book. Uh, again, everybody, it's Bottom of the Pot, Persian Recipes and Stories. Thank you so much, Naz. Thank you so much, Andy. This was wonderful. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che and produced and edited by Emma Wartsman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.